All right. Well, I'm, we're going to continue on in our study uh, th- this week on uh, in the Revelations chapter 19. And for those that have been with us, what is this chapter? This is the most what chapter of the Bible? The most exciting chapter in the Bible. This is really it. This is the culmination of all that Jesus came for. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. Um, Larry, if I could have my slides, please. The... Um, so today we're going to be talking about the the end of it, and the end is talking about the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The, and, and the first part of it, Revelations chapter nineteen, the first six verses, we were celebrating the victory over evil and what God had accomplished in destroying the city of Babylon and also the evil empire of Babylon and and the power that it had to deceive creation it was it was defeated and that particular six verses were the only place in the new testament where the where the word hallelujah was used and it was used four times in six verses so we called that the hallelujah chorus of the new testament and then the the second grouping of uh, verses chapter uh, verses 7 through 10 we were describing the invitation to the wedding feast which is um, in the context of a Jewish Galilean wedding tradition and the excitement of what it is like to come into a wedding, which is exactly what Jesus is doing because he's the bridegroom and we are the church is the bride and he weds the bride and that happens in the, the rapture of the church. Now in the last part of this chapter, John the Revelator describes the climax of it all and this is the second coming of Christ where Christ actually comes in the clouds, but he doesn't stay in the clouds. He actually comes down this time, and he touches down on the Mount of Olives. And um, the, all the world will see him, and it'll be, a, it'll be a, with great fanfare and great supernatural events. When Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, that the mountain actually splits in two, and a great valley is, is created there in that area on the Mount of Olives. And um, Jesus will accomplish his purpose in defeating all evil, at that time, and then also he begins his thousand-year millennial reign um, in, a perfect, in, a, in a perfect world that he will rule over all of creation at that time for the next thousand years. And we'll talk about that later. But our, t- our text today is Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. And if you can, would you stand with me, if you would, and let's read this together. By the way, there's notes in the back. Does everybody have a set of notes? If you don't have notes, let me know. Raise your hand and... Dr. Gill will bring one to you, but I think, okay, looks like we're all good. So beginning at, uh, Scott, you can get some. <laughs> beginning at chapter, um, chapter 19, verse 11, read with me. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Verse 19, Then I saw a beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this exciting description of what is coming in our future. And Lord, for those that are here that are worshiping the Antichrist, it is not an exciting day. It is a day of great woe and a great judgment. But for those that are in the church and for those that are tribulation saints, it's going to be a blessed day. And it's going to be a great day of celebration where we see Jesus actually avenging all sin and all unrighteousness on that day. God, help us. Help us to understand what's being said here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know the last few weeks we've been going through this, um, the analogy is that we're drinking water from a fire hose. And there's a lot of information that we're getting through here. And uh, so do your best to absorb it. Now, I don't expect all of us or any of us really to get all the details of it because there's just so much to, to capture but I think that if, as we read the story and, and, and we see what's being uh, overall, the overall uh, theme of what's happening here, it truly is an exciting time of his, in, in, in our future. And it's going to change, obviously, all of mankind forever and ever. So um, I strongly encourage you to take notes on that little paper or, and go home and reread what we're talking about. Go back and study for yourself and let the word open itself up to you and your personal study time. So let's begin. Revelation nineteen eleven through 13, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's interesting to note here that This is actually the second time John saw heaven open up. The first time was to let John in so that John could see what's happening in heaven. The second time that heaven opens is to let Jesus out. That Jesus now comes, as we're describing here, and he's coming in his glory, and he's coming with a purpose. I believe this passage really describes this second coming at probably the most graphic in any any place in the Bible. But it's also in sharp contrast to what we see in the rapture. This is the, we we can describe the second coming of Christ really in two phases. The first phase is the rapture of the church where he comes and he comes in and, and he stays in the clouds where the church meets him in the clouds. And the second phase of this second coming process is when Jesus actually touches his feet on the Mount of Olives. After rapture, Christ 
comes to those that are waiting for him and those people meet him in the air. Like I said before, he doesn't touch down at the rapture. This is a silent event from the world's perspective. It's, it's, it's a secret event. I mean, the world doesn't know it's happening. There are no signs that have to happen before it happens. It just happens and it happens instantaneously. And all the world recognizes is the fact that people have disappeared. And there is people that are gone that once were here, and now they're just a pile of clothes where they were at. And that's how the world recognizes that there's a taking away. And it can't understand it other than the fact is there's going to be some a lot of spinning that's already happening. The Antichrist, I mean, the devil already knows it's going to happen. He's already spinning his stories. He's already preparing his his reasoning that what happened to all these people and uh, that's a whole another conversation that we could have on that but for the second coming of which we're talking today the whole world will see christ the whole world will know that it's happening christ is coming with a very specific purpose here and that he is bringing justice to the world and he's coming also to establish his thousand year reign so he's coming with a very specific purpose and no one will escape this process no one will be able to see or not see him this is going to be a very very big event in the world the old testament prophet zechariah was shown this and he describes it in his book, uh, in the chapter 14 of Zechariah, where um, Jesus' feet st- is standing on the Mount of Olives. And this is what how Zechariah describes it. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse 3, he says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Aziel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. You know, I find it interesting that this what's going to happen with Jesus coming back on the Mount of Olives is the exact point where he left earth. When he ascended to heaven after his time on earth, he was also on the Mount of Olives. So it's interesting that, uh, as recorded in Acts 1, that Jesus is coming back to the place that he left. Remember what the angel said to the disciples? Why are you standing here looking up? He's going to come back in the same way that you've seen him leave, in the same spot. So it's exciting for that. However, when he when he comes back, it's going to be very, very graphic. It's going to be very powerful. It's going to be very supernatural because when he comes, he is going to split the mountain. And we've never seen that happen. We've seen volcanoes explode. And the power that is is given and, and, and shown with an of a exploding volcano. But can you imagine the power that's going to require to split a mountain in half and actually move it right to left, and it just creates a valley. I mean, it's supernatural. Matthew gives his description of this in Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 27. It says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather Immediately after the distress of those those days, after the distress of those days means after the great tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, there's many things that differ here between the rapture and the second coming. And it's clear from Scripture that the second coming will be a glorious event that all the world will see. Even though it means death and destruction for the evil people of the world, the world will can't help but marvel at the power and at the glory of Jesus Christ. When they see him coming back from heaven, it's going to be something that they will just, it will be un, unprecedented in all of history. The rapture, however, was a secret event. It was something that was that was only for the true believers and the church, and only they knew what was happening. The only way the world knew that the rapture happened was because of the disappearance of people. The world would know it after the fact. Another major difference of the second coming and the rapture is the amount of time that this will take. We know that the rapture will be instantaneous. It says in Thessalonians that in the twinkling of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, we talked about this before, is one one hundredth of a second. It's how quickly light reflects off the eye is the twinkle of an eye. And at that instantaneous moment, all the, the, the those that are already dead and are in graves, the graves will be opened. And then we, alive, will be caught up in the air with them to meet Jesus in the air instantaneously, quicker than we can think. It's over. It's done. So there's no time in the rapture. It is just going to be an instantaneous event. However, the second coming will take a serious amount of time. We don't know exactly how much time. The Bible doesn't say, but there's going to be lots of things happening during the second coming. There's going to be the mountain splitting in two like we've already described. Um, there's going to be um, a, a war. There's going to be um, the, 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 the war of Ar- the battle of Armageddon. There's going to be a lot of things, and this could take days, maybe weeks. We don't know. It doesn't say. But it's going to take a serious amount of time when Jesus comes back the second time, and all the world's going to see it. In John's vision, he sees a person coming back, who can be none other than Jesus Christ. He said, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. I love the fact that the rider on the white horse is called faithful and true. You know, we have very few things in this world that we can even consider faithful and true. I mean, our world is spinning wildly towards deception and lies, flagrant lies. Without even people blinking an eye, they lie right to your face. And our leaders and our politicians are doing this. And so many other facets of our life are filled with deception. So for the fact that when Jesus comes and he could be called faithful and true, 
what a blessing that's going to be to imagine that we have truth that we can stand on, not relative truth, not truth that's good for you and not good for me and all these different things. No, when Jesus comes back, he will be a faithful and true representative of God. No more false teaching, no more deception. The first writer that we've seen, we've also seen another writer in Revelation chapter 6. You can go back and read that. There was a, a another writer that came on a white horse. That was the Antichrist. And he was anything but faithful and true. And now we have Jesus coming that is going to be perfect in that way. And Jesus is changing this time. Jesus is not, this is not the first time Jesus came to earth, right? The first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a lowly baby in a manger. We know that, right? We know what Christmas is about. But when he came then, he came humble and with grace to forgive. We talked about forgiveness today, how important forgiveness is. That was Jesus' one of his main ministries, was teaching people how to forgive and how to release people. And with that comes freedom. And joy that we sang about as well earlier today. So the first time Jesus came as a lowly baby in a manger, humble and with a, with a mercy, with a, with a purpose and mission of mercy and grace. The second time he comes back though, he's coming in a totally different way. This time he's coming as a conquering king that brings judgment to the world. He's not coming gracefully now. He's not coming um, quietly into the world. No, he's coming with a bang. He's coming with an announcement to say, I'm back, <laughs> and I'm here to be serious about judgment. I am here to reclaim what the enemy has stolen, and I'm going to take it back rightfully because I'm the owner. I'm the creator, and I'm here, and I'm going to be righteous and true in my justice. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's on a mission to judge and to wage war to all those that have stood against him and those that have stood with the Antichrist. Christ comes now to compromise with no one, with no government official, with no leader in this world. He's coming back to say, I'm back, and it's my world, and I'm taking it back. He's declared to be faithful and true, that no unrighteousness will be found in him, and his agenda will be pure holiness. Pure holiness where no thing, nothing can stand in the presence of God that's not holy. Holy is the Lamb. Holy is the Lord. We are made holy by the righteousness of God, Christ's blood. Nothing in ourselves can make us holy besides Christ. His appearance will be something this world has never seen. His eyes of blazing fire and on his head will be many crowns. And, and his, his name is beyond our comprehension. And, and when we say this, it's because, well, there's many names of God in the Bible. There's many descriptions of God in the Bible, but nothing compares, nothing that we know of can compare to God's name. It's not that God doesn't know his name or Jesus doesn't know his name. No, but we just don't, in our sinful nature, we cannot comprehend the holiness of God. I think that's an important point that we recognize. These descriptions of his glory and his majesty are not earthly. This is something only that's worthy of heaven that we're starting to see now, that he is proving his earthly, or he's proving his godly nature here, and that all of earth's power will bow to him. 
Nothing can stand in his presence. He says that his robe is dipped in blood. And what does that signify? Well, it signifies two things. First, the blood that he shed for our salvation on the cross. That's the only thing that gets us into a righteous position with God in the first place is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that he gave. And so his robe will be dipped in the blood that he shed for us. And then the other thing it signifies is the blood shed yet to come because of the bloodshed that's going to be shed of the unrighteous in judgment. It says also that he does give us this indicator of his name, that his name is the word of God. And I find that to be very significant, because by this name, all things were created. If Genesis chapter 1, the word was with God, right? And by the word, he created all things. He created the world through a spoken word. Who's the word? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. So by the word, all things were created. And by the name of the word, all things will be judged. All things will be judged. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was that has been made. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for that. That we have that, we have that faithful and true knowledge of who Christ is. Revelation chapter 19, 14, uh, beginning at verse 14, it says, and here's something I think really interesting. So watch with, hang with me on this one. It says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Another very important thing that differentiates the second coming from the rapture is that this time Jesus isn't coming alone. In the rapture, it was just Jesus. In the second coming, he's bringing the armies of heaven with him. Now, who are these armies? Who are the armies that are coming with him? You know, I like the fact that he says these are armies, not an army. Because if it was an army, it would, it would signify one party, one thing. But the armies indicate that there's more than one. So who are these armies? Well, we're given a clue to one of them in the apparel that they're dressed in. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, we've been talking about this in the last few weeks, and we discovered that typically things that are dressed, people that are dressed in fine linen, white and clean, typically represent redeemed humans. These are people. This is the church, guys. This is the church. We're going to be one of the armies that are coming back with Christ to witness what he does in the second coming. So one of the armies is the church. And I think this is a a great um, indicator that is a reference to the church is already in heaven. That the church was already raptured 
in this, at the rapture seven years before this time, and we've been up celebrating the wedding. We've been consummating the wedding with the bridegroom for seven years. In Jewish Galilean traditions, the bridegroom would go get the bride, bring him to the father's house, and the bride and the bridegroom would go into a room and spend seven days together in the room and not come out for seven days. Food was given under the door and everything else was passed out. And the, the couple, because you remember, these were betrothed way before this. And the bride and the bridegroom may not have known each other. So they're getting to know each other for seven days during the wedding celebration at the Father's house. That signifies for us that we, the church, are spending seven years in heaven getting to know our bridegroom face to face. Personally, we're getting to know Jesus Christ. And then, at the end, we come back with him to witness the second coming. I like that. That excites me. That makes me excited. That gives me great comfort and great encouragement to know that I'm going to be part of something much, much bigger than me. Much, much bigger than I can even begin to imagine that I'm going to come back and and witness this, but I'm going to spend all this time with Jesus in heaven first. So that's one army. Another very possible army would be the angelic army that is currently in place and very active in heaven already. We know there are angels in heaven, right? We believe that, that there are angels. And that they serve God and they're given responsibility over mankind. They are God's messengers. And it's from these ranks, actually, that Satan fell. Satan was Lucifer, the greatest angel created, probably the first angel possibly created, by far the the most beautiful. He was known as the worship leader of heaven. And he had an issue of pride that came in his life. And he said, I want to be God. I want to be like God. I want to take God's place. And when pride entered heaven, there's no place for pride because that's unrighteous. It's unholy. And what's holy, what's not holy can't stand in God's presence. So God had to cast Lucifer out. And Lucifer was so deceptive, he was able to convince a third of the angelic host to go with him. And that created the demons that we have today. So now Satan and his demons came out of the angel realm. That's another teaching we could get into. But there's great numbers of angels that have stayed true to God. If a third fell, then that means two-thirds are still in heaven. Listen, guys, we're not outnumbered. <laughs> you may feel like it's, it's all, you're all by yourself in this world. You may feel very conquered in some, at some points and times, but recognize the enemy is a liar, and he barks a lot bigger than his bite, and he sounds a lot tougher than he really is. There's two-thirds of angels that are left to battle against the third that have fallen, and be assured that... The two-thirds win. The majority finally wins. <laughs> We're in a minority here in our country the, where the squeaky minority seems to be controlling the majority, but not in heaven. I, I like this little cartoon that Larry for, forwarded me this week. It's, he's got, this is funny, it's got a cartoon of, of the devil. He's got a little horn, so he knows the devil, in, in coming into heaven, right? And the angel sitting there looking at the devil, and it's clearly this is a devil, but the devil's saying, I identify as an angel. <laughs> and the angel responds, 
We don't play that game here. <laughs> we don't play that game here. I don't care what you identify. If you're not an angel, you're not getting in. Or if you're not saved, you're not getting in. And therefore, you're also not coming back as one of the armies either. According to John Wolford, he wrote a book called uh, Revelations, a good study book. He says this about the fact that there could be multiple armies coming back. He says, there is no reason to limit this, limit being that only, that being one of their armies, only one army. He says, to the church, though the church is arrayed in fine linen, that's the key to us, is that angels aren't typically drift, uh, described that way, only the church is. Or the right, or those that are the tribulation saints. The church is not alone in having righteousness in the form of righteous deeds, and it is more probable that there is not only the saints, but also the holy angels are meant. It is well not to impose limitations upon a scripture that are not implicit in the text itself. Now I agree with that. I think that we can have great imagination when it comes to reading scripture and seeing what God intends for it to be. In fact, I, uh, I can, I can very easily understand why angels would be part of this, this army along with the church. I mean, these angels have been serving God since, since, well, whatever God created them. I don't know when God created angels. We know God was never created. He always has been, always was. But angels are created like humans are created. But they were obviously created before we were. So these angels have a choice. Because a third of them chose to follow Satan, right? Two-thirds chose to stay faithful. So isn't it only make sense then that the angels, the faithful ones, would come to celebrate the victory over evil? Of course it does. And in my mind, I'm excited to think that I can be next to my guardian angel, the one that's been watching me over all of my life, and we're going to come together, and we're going to be best buds. And we're going to be watching together as Jesus destroys the Antichrist, and he destroys evil. And so I think it's exciting the fact that we can have two armies, the armies of the righteous and the armies of the angelic, are coming together to witness this. And then John sees in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, he says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So understand, in this last battle, it really won't be a battle at all. <laughs> there are no casualties on God's side here. There's nobody taking one for the for the gipper here, right? No way. Jesus speaks the words. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he simply will speak the words and the victory will be given. And I find it so interesting that just like Jesus being the word that spoke the earth and creation into place, he will speak and it will be judged. That his words are that powerful. It's the same breath that breathed life into that lump of clay will also make another breath and it will turn that life back into a lump of clay. Right? I mean, he is the one that speaks it in and he speaks it out. It's all about that. And I don't think it's any coincidence here that the word word is in the word sword. Think about it. A sword is made up of a word. And that sword is double-edged, and it's sharper than two-edged sword, and it goes in and it, it divides, right? And that's exactly the Word of God. That God, I think, wants us to know that it's so obvious that Jesus, being the Word of God, 
is seen as the sword coming out of his mouth, and his words conquer. By his words, he's victorious. Revelation, Revelation 19.15, then he says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. An iron scepter. This indicates that once Jesus destroys the evil rulers of this world, that he will set himself up as the perfect ruler of this world. And then he will rule, not by public opinion, not by vote, but he will rule righteously with a rod of iron. And we don't know exactly what that means, maybe, when it's going to come into the tribulation, or I'm sorry, into millennium, how that's going to work. But just know that there is no unrighteous ruler. There is no agenda that's hidden here. Full disclosure, it's all holy. It's all good. And Jesus will rule. And then John sees it also that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And notice how John stresses the judgment of God. You know, we can talk about God's love, and God is love. Thank the Lord that he is. But he's also a judge. He's also righteous. And God is going to come as a judge. Jesus will be the great judge. And he uses words like winepress and fury and wrath. These are hard words. Because these words all describe ultimate destruction. When grapes are put into a wine press, they go in as plump, juicy, purple fruit. And then that wine press starts to grind. And what it does is it takes that that grape and it takes it down to its most basic element of liquid. and And the grape is totally unrecognizable. Totally destroys the fruit. The wine press. And then it's the, with God's wrath and his fury that's on display. And wh- wh- why we have to know it this way is because this is how God completes his justice. That there's nobody that escapes. All evil will be destroyed. It's complete justice. And then verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has his name, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, meaning that there is nothing higher in all creation, than Jesus Christ. I like the way the psalmist records this. He he predicts this in Psalms chapter 2. Read with me this this psalm. Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the, law, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will pro- proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Here's the, here's the thing that the psalmist says. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He wrote this and just with the vision of what was going to happen at the end time and how God was going to come back and how Jesus was going to come back and and rule this way. I just love the way the Bible always confirms itself. 
It always ties itself together. There's nothing contradictory in the Bible. Let's go back to Revelation 19, verse 17, and it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come together, come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now John the Revelator sees this angel in the sun announcing the great supper of God. Now, this is not the same supper we talked about last week. Because last week we were talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Right? This is not that supper. This is a supper that is provided by God, but it is going to be the flesh of evil men. And the birds of the air are going to come and feast on them and gorge on them for we don't know how long until they're gone. So this great supper of of God is of revenge, of avenging the evil of the world. I love that. I love it because there's two great suppers. We're going to be having a great supper too. But our supper at that time was going to be the wedding feast. And we're going to be celebrating the wedding of the Lamb. And then verse 20. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its, on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now let's stop here for a minute and think about what this means. The beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are men inhabited by Satan. But they are captured alive and they're thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. They are the first inhabitants of eternal hell. Those that have died up to this point unrighteously, they are held in Hades. And that is an area of punishment. But they will also be thrown into the lake of fire after the thousand-year millennium, after they have to stand in with God in the great white throne judgment, and then all the dead will be brought to life one more time, and they will stand before God in the white throne judgment, and then they will be judged according to their evil works, and then they will be thrown into the lake of fire of burning sulfur, which will be the eternal hell thereafter. So it's like heaven changes locations. The present heaven today will change locations at that time as well. Well, that'll be the new heavens where the new earth is created and the new Jerusalem settles down and the earth is recreated and that becomes heaven then where God then settles here. Also, Hades changes location and hell then becomes the eternal lake of fire, which has been described right here. Satan, on the other hand, does not go with them at this point, Satan is bound, and we're going to read about this in Revelation 20. Satan is bound with with uh, shackles and, and big iron chains, and he's thrown into the great abyss. And he's held captive there for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand year period of time, he'll come back for a short time to have one more time to tempt men before they're then thrown into the lake of fire of sulfur. So... Lots of stuff going on here. That's why this is not going to be an instantaneous event. A lot of things happening at the second coming of Christ. Finally, Revelation 21. 
It says, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So those not killed in the first stage of the battle are now put to death. And the entire army of the beast is killed. And all only that's left then are people that are going to be judged as righteous or unrighteous. I think what's important here is that I know we've said a lot of stuff. And I think the most important thing we have to remember is that we are just witnesses of what's happening. So don't don't get upset. <laughs> don't think, well, what's my job going to be? Well, don't worry about it. You don't have a job there. We're going to be witnesses of what God is doing in that in that last day, and it's going to be very exciting for us. And I think the other thing, Jackie, would you come, please? And I think that something else that in this huge amount of information that we've been given over the, over the past few weeks is that this is probably the most important thing we can get out of this. Everything God does is about redemption. Everything that he's been talking about up to this point in time is not to bring fear into your life. It's not to bring a sense of doom and gloom. No, what he's all talking about is redemption. The purpose that Jesus came for the, in the first place was to redeem mankind. And we now have the opportunity to choose redemption. On the other hand, it also must be made very clear that all those that spurn and reject God, that they will experience God's fury and his judgment. It's important we know the difference. And it's important that we know that we have a choice in the matter. And the only questions now that we can ask ourselves, and the most important things we can ask is is this, am I... Have I truly accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? Am I truly part of the church? Am I truly part of the bride? Am I keeping my wedding clothes clean? Am I living holy and righteous before the Lord today? Am I ready for His return? I don't want to go through the tribulation. I don't want to. I want to be ready. When Jesus comes back, I want to be part of that church that's instantaneously taken out of this world. Am I believing what I'm reading in God's Word? There's a lot of information here. Go back and study it. But most importantly, believe it. Don't argue with it. Take it for what it says. And am I living obediently to God's word? These are some questions that, listen, we have the power to choose today. And if I choose wisely, then I have great future ahead of me, a great joyful future ahead of me. If I make the poor choice and, and, and think that I can figure it out later, or I'm not really believing this stuff, well, guys, we will have no excuse. We will have no excuse. So choose wisely today. Our job is to believe. And also our job is to be an end-time evangelist. Share what you know. Share what you believe. Share the experience that you have in your life with others. Remember, God would have no man reject him. God would have all come to a repentance and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's God's desire. Let's do our part. Let's do our part in this. Time is short. Let's make the best use of the time that we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name, and I thank you, God, for your word. You've given us a lot of information in this chapter. And yes, it's a very exciting chapter because it details in great detail and and, and great explanation of the things that are about to happen. And God, I pray that we don't think this to be a conspiracy theory, that we don't think this to be something that's not really true. I pray, God, that our hearts and minds would be open to what the Holy Spirit is really trying to get us to understand. And we may not understand all the details, and that's okay. We don't need to. We just need to know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you're coming someday. And we want to be ready. And we want to be part of that that army to come back with you. So I pray right now that your Holy Spirit's conviction would be strong here and for those listening online as well, that we don't take this as an optional thing. Father, I just pray that you would just ride in our hearts and lives today. Break through any, any, any stubbornness This morning, you can know Jesus. You can know him. And you can start by asking him to be your savior. You can ask, you can start by asking him to forgive you of your sins. And that's just the start. And then you need to live for him. Jesus, I pray that you forgive us today. Restore us, Father, into that relationship that you would have with us. Bring us into full knowledge of your love and your mercy and your grace that you pour out for us today. We thank you, Jesus, for what you did in the cross for us. And that robe dipped in blood signifies the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that we can choose to receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Let's sing the song that Jackie and Scott are playing.
Amen. Father, we'll adore you, Jesus. In fact, we can start right now. We don't have to wait until then. We can begin right now to praise your name and to adore you for who you are and for what you are for us. And today, Father, we just lift our hearts before you. As we prepare to go out of this place today, God, we take this praise with us. We take this worship with us. We take this word with us. And we, God, just adore you and we worship you for all that you are forever and ever. In Jesus' name. Now listen, if you need to be prayed, if you need someone to pray with you, I'd love to pray with you. Come back, come see me today or call me throughout this week. I'd love to pray with you and those online as well. If if you need prayer, don't hesitate to reach out to me or to someone else, Pastor Rip or someone else. Just reach out. Let's pray for each other. And let's lift each other up today. You're not alone. We're not alone. We win. We win. Amen? Amen. Father, just go with us today. Bless us today. Lord, encourage us today with the words that we've been given. Encourage us with the faithful and true that's coming. And we just honor you today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Be blessed. Fellowship together as you go today.